Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast for the seven days starting March 15th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Scientific American online editor Kate Wong tells us what she found out about hobbits, the real kind, last week at a major anthropology conference. Chemist Jennifer Mass has one of the more unusual jobs in science, and she talks about what she does at work. And journalist Paul D. Thacker discusses an article he published last week about how some environmental groups aren't exactly what they seem. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. First up, Scientific American Online editor Kate Wong. Kate wrote the cover story for the February 2005 issue of Scientific American about the fossils of tiny humans found on the island of Flores in Indonesia. She's the magazine's resident paleontology and anthropology expert and just attended the annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists in Anchorage, Alaska, where there was a heap of hobbit talk. I called her at her office in New York City. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm fine, Steve. How are you? Good, good. How was the trip? It was a good trip. I learned a lot, actually. So there was a lot of discussion about the uh, the tiny Flores people at this conference? That's right. There was. Let, let's back up and, and let's go over w- what that whole situation is for people who might not have, have heard about it in the last year. Sure. Well, basically, back in October of 2004, a team of Indonesian and Australian scientists announced that they had found these tiny human remains from Flores in Indonesia. And they judged these remains to represent a hominid species new to science um, that lived as recently as 12,000 years ago. And these people would have been in the genus Homo. That's right. They determined that these people were probably a dwarfed species of um, an archaic hominid called Homo erectus. Uh, that evolved a very small size on this island that they lived on, um, presumably as a response to the limited food resources they had. And what was the discussion at the conference? There's been a lot of controversy over whether it truly is a separate species or if it's some kind of abnormal modern human. Is that right? That's right. Uh, from the beginning, there has been people who have suspected that rather than being a new species, this is actually a modern human that suffered from a disease uh, known as microcephaly. This is a, a medical disorder in which uh, the brain turns out to be much smaller than expected. And it can be a syndrome um it can appear in over 200 syndromes. How many so, how many uh, complete skeletons do we have from Flores? There's only one that's um, that preserves both the head and some of the skeleton, and the other individuals uh, that have been found are represented only by a few skeletal bones. So what's what's the actual feel within the anthropology community right now? You've just been around. Dozens, at least dozens, or was it hundreds of anthropologists? How many people were hundreds. there? Hundreds. Hundreds. So what do people think? Do most people think this is really a, a completely different species, or are most people subscribing to the idea that this is a human with uh, with an actual disease? I can't put percentages on that yet, but I would say that although there are still plenty of people who um, believe that the original interpretation is, is correct, um, there are an increasing number of people who at least think that the hypothesis of a pathology like this um, microcephaly has not yet been sufficiently ruled out. Was there any particular talk at the conference that really caught your attention? There were a few, but let me tell you about 
one in particular. Um, this was a presentation given by Tom Shuneman of the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And what he did was to survey cranial capacity and body weight data, so brain size and body weight data, for a bunch of modern humans and also fossil ones. And he plotted all of this on a graph. And he determined that uh, the brain size of the Flores hominid relative to her body size um, more closely approximates that which you see in the Australopithecines, which are much older. Um, you know, these are things like Lucy, which lived over three million years ago. Um, so this would make it seem like it really is a, a separate species. Well, that's one interpretation. But then he found an even better fit was with microcephalic modern humans. Uh-huh. So given three possible explanations for what the Flores hominid is, and those three possibilities are that it's you know a, a dwarfed species um, descended from Homo erectus or an Australopithecine, or a microcephalic modern human, he says that the most parsimonious diagnosis, the one that requires the, the fewest assumptions, would be microcephaly. Okay, so this is this is a story that we're going to be following probably for years, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Kate. You're welcome, Steve. It was my pleasure. Look for more of Kate's conference coverage on the Scientific American blog, blog.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, three are true. See if you know which one is totally bogus. Story one is from the dismal science economics. $237 million a day. That's the estimated loss in productivity over the next couple of weeks from Americans watching streaming web coverage of March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament, at work. Story two. New figures released last week show that smoking in the U.S. is at its lowest level in 54 years. Story three. The latest theory on the Loch Ness Monster is that people really did see something in the lock, and what they saw was an elephant in Scotland. And story four, cognitive neuroscientists working with functional MRI scanners believe they have identified a small area in the right temporal cortex that explains why some people are so good at memorizing TV theme songs. We'll be back with the answer, but first... Jennifer Mass got her doctorate in chemistry from Cornell University in 1995, and she put that Ph.D. to use in one of the more exotic areas of science. To find out more, I called her at her office in Delaware. Dr. Mass, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Steve. You have one of the more unusual careers uh, among people with doctorates in chemistry. Tell us what you do. Sure thing. I am a conservation scientist, a chemist who works in a conservation department, an art conservation department, on the preservation of objects of art. And what institution are you with? The Winterthur Museum. Which is in Winterthur, Delaware. Yes, it's the DuPont Collection of Art and Antiques, specifically Henry Francis DuPont's collection. So when you were in graduate school getting your doctorate in chemistry, did you know that this was what you wanted to do? No, that was actually in the days before the Internet. And so I knew that I wanted to combine science and art in some way, but it wasn't until I was finishing up my dissertation that I learned about the field of art conservation and that there were chemists who work in art museums spending their careers studying objects of art. What is a typical day for you? Oh, let's see. We've got curators who come in having questions about objects that they'd like to acquire for the collection. 
wanting to know about the authenticity of pieces, maybe compare them to pieces that are already in our collection. We have conservators coming in having questions about prior restoration on objects of art. It's only in the last 40 years or so that conservation has really become a professional discipline where people are scrupulous about keeping track of all of the restorations that are being done to objects of art, whereas art has been restored, basically, for the entire period of time that art has been made. And so we find so many undocumented, unexpected materials on an object of art. So you'll look at a, a 500-year-old painting, and when you start to really analyze it, you'll find layers of previous attempts to restore the original? Absolutely, yes. And in order for the conservators that we work with to undo some of those prior restorations, some of them, which can be quite damaging to the original materials, we'll have to first help them do the materials identification using something like X-ray fluorescence or gas chromatography. What kind of techniques do you use when you're doing uh, authentication? Oh, authentication, um, a lot of it depends on whether or not we can take a sample or not. If we can't take a sample, which is actually fairly common considering the value of some of these pieces, then we'll be totally non-destructive. We'll do X-ray fluorescence. And so from the elements that we find present in an object of art, we'll try and then infer what pigments are present. And from our knowledge of what pigments were introduced during different time periods, we can get a date range for when different paint layers were applied. And the big tool there is X-ray fluorescence? Yes. So you bombard the uh, the painting with X-rays and, and stuff bounces off, it fluoresces off, and then you can tell what the original substances are that way? Exactly. We're using energy dispersive X-ray fluorescence. So it's the energies of the X-rays that are emitted by the elements in the pigment that tell us what different elements are present. Right. And, you, and if you find a pigment that wasn't uh, available before 1900, you know you've got a phony. Exactly. One bad actor is chromium. Chromium-based pigments were not introduced until the 19th century. And so if we see chromium in the greens, for example, on an ancient Roman object, this has happened in the past, or even in an 18th century object, then we know either we're looking at an area of private restoration, maybe we're looking at a pastiche, maybe we're looking at something that's an out-and-out fake. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you on the job? Oh, let's see. Oh, um, I used to work at the Met, actually. I did a postdoc there after I got out of graduate school. and The Metropolitan we, Museum of Art here in New York. Yes. And we used to just laugh about how every time a piece came into the conservation lab that we just loved, thought was spectacularly beautiful, it was a fake. <laughs> we seemed to have this, this unerring eye for picking out fakes and absolutely loving them. So it's a good thing that we didn't have the curator's job because we would have done a pretty bad job on that end. So what if if the fakes are so good, what does that say about art? <laughs> well, what we like to tell collectors, if we have the bad news to tell them about their object, is that it's decorative. If you like it, hang it on your wall. It's a fake, but it's still beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't detract from the beauty of the piece. It certainly detracts from the value of the piece. But we do in our lab at Winter Tour a lot of work for dealers and collectors and auction houses and I tell you, I often feel like the opposite of Antiques Roadshow because so often we have to give people the bad news about their objects rather than the good news. So what's a typical uh, reduction in value for a painting that somebody thinks is really worth something if it's a fake? Uh, we have... Uh, 100%, right? <laughs> well, to give you an example, we have a painting that's signed by Pissarro in the lab now, and we're in agreement that it is a 19th century French painting, and we're investigating the signature if the signature is authentic, then we're talking about several hundred thousand dollars. 
if the signature turns out not to be authentic, if it's done with cadmium red, which is a 20th century pigment, then we're talking maybe $25. So The kind of painting that's suitable for your motel wall. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dr. Mass, thanks very much for talking to us today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a lot of fun. Dr. Mass is co-director of a project involving the recovery of the Beauvoir and Orr O'Keeffe Museum collections in Biloxi, Mississippi, which were affected by Hurricane Katrina. And she also contributed her insights to my column on an art museum party that went bad. That story will appear in the May issue of Scientific American. Now it's time to find out which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories, three of which are real. Story 1, NCAA Tournament Basketball costs $237 million a day in lost productivity. Story 2, smoking's at a 54-year low. Story 3, a paleontologist theorizes that the Loch Ness Monster is really an elephant. And Story 4, scientists pinpointed the area of the brain responsible for why you know that it was a... That is why you know all the words to old TV theme songs. Time. Story one is true. The L.A. Times reports that a reputable consulting firm estimates that the close to 60 million Americans who follow hoops are going to watch about 15 minutes a day of March Madness at the office for a total daily loss in productivity of $237 million. Story two is true. Smoking is down to its lowest levels in 54 years in the U.S., according to the Washington Post. That's right, only 378 billion cigarettes were sold in the U.S. in 2005, which amazingly is the lowest number since 1951. And only 400,000 Americans died of smoking-related causes last year. Story three is true. Scottish paleontologist Neil Clark notes in the March issue of the Journal of the Open University Geological Society that traveling circuses would often take a break at the lock and let the elephants go for a wee swim. Some of the more famous Nessie photos do look like an elephant's trunk. I mean, now that you're thinking about elephants. Our elephant? Hey, that's the answer. There's a whole lot of elephants in the circus. Which means that the story about scientists pinpointing the brain region for memorizing TV theme songs is... Totally bogus. Next up, journalist Paul D. Thacker. He writes for the news section of the journal Environmental Science and Technology, published by the American Chemical Society. Last week, he had a story about environmental groups that aren't exactly what they appear to be. I called him at his office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Paul. How you doing? Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. You have uh, an interesting article in Environmental Science and Technology online, and it's called Hidden Ties... Big environmental changes backed by big industry. Well, what originally got me into this story was I started to look back at uh, President Bush's healthy forest legislation. There was a movement by the president and Republicans to um, manage the land through a healthy forest legislation. And the two big things that came out of that was we need to thin the forest in order to prevent fires. The, the forests are too o- overgrown. And there was some criticism coming from a lot of scientists, first off saying that you know, we didn't really know how to effectively, uh, how to thin effectively to prevent, prevent fires. And there was also some concern about the fact that they were going to streamline everything, which what that meant was cutting out citizen comment about uh, logging operations. So I was looking into the background of this to see, you know, where are we today um, with the healthy forest legislation? And in the process of downloading like three years of congressional testimony and um, a lot of uh, newspaper reports, I ran across a group called Project Protect, which caught my attention because I had never heard of them before. And I started looking them up, 
And I found out that the campaign director for Project Protect was a guy named Tim Wigley. Well, when I looked him up, I found out that he actually worked at a PR firm called PacWest Communications. I thought, well, this is very odd. So then I started Googling uh, Tim Wigley. Well, back up a bit. Project Protect was supposed to be what? It was designed to be an environmental group that was trying to protect forests um, by teaming up with President Bush to say we need to pass healthy forest legislation because we want to protect the forest from catastrophic wildfires. Okay, so they're, they're posing as an environmental group, but they're really not. Right. I started looking into the background of this guy, and I found out that now he's also working on another grassroots organization called the Save Our Species Alliance, which is working with Congressman Richard Pombo of California to change the Endangered Species Act. So that just kind of got my attention. I thought, well, that's interesting. Why Why do you see a person jumping from issue to issue, first passing President Bush's healthy forest legislation, now working with Congressman Pombo on a bill to change the Endangered Species Act? So I looked a little bit at the Save Our Species Alliance. I looked up their lobbying registration form, and the lobbyists for the Save Our Species Alliance, so this is the one working with Pombo, their lobbyist is a man named Stephen Quarles, who I know very well because he goes back uh, for, I don't know, a number of years, certainly into the 90s, as a timber lobbyist. So that, of course, raised some warning bells. Oh, why is a timber lobbyist working with this environmental organization? So is this a trend we're seeing where, where industry-backed people are setting up what appear to be pro-environment groups but are actually lobbying for for the kind of legislation that industry, rather than your typical environmental groups, would like to see enacted? This idea of creating these sort of, they're called, these groups are called astroturf. Um, I've heard it described as, you know, just add money and watch it grow. Well, that's astroturf as opposed to real grassroots, right? right. What's going on with this is, this is not necessarily a, a, a new, um, a, a new innovation. A lot of this, I, the idea of creating these front groups really came to fruition back in the 90s with the wise use movement. And um, there was a book written on this actually by a man, a man named, a uh, journalist named David Helvarg, and it's called The War Against the Greens. And he tracked a lot of these individuals, and I actually ran across some of these same people that he'd written back in the 1990s. I think what's a little different right now that we're seeing today in the Bush administration is they're really making no attempt at all to even try and organize people in any way. It's just going directly to uh, a sort of well-oiled machine, which is made up of uh, lobbyists here in Washington, D.C., where I'm at, uh, PR firms in, uh, in D.C., and also apparently now with PacWest. They're working on a lot of uh, land conservation issues. And, and the whole uh, intent here is just to generate ads in newspapers or television that make the voter think that certain environmental groups are actually behind this kind of legislation? I've heard some people describe it as that, but then I've heard, also heard uh, some people describe it as it's not necessarily that they're trying to convince voters who seem to be very disengaged a lot with uh, voting right now. As much as it is is to, to convince um, a congressman or a senator that there is um, a political cover for them to vote for certain pieces of legislation which they're probably concerned that the voters don't really like. I mean, when you look to see where the American public is on environmental issues, they're very much for environmental um, uh, regulations. Uh, even Republicans are uh, lining up. They think that the regulations are either, either are strong enough or don't go far enough. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for having me, Steve.
Thacker's article is available at the website of the journal Environmental Science and Technology. The URL is long, but I created a shortcut so you can access the piece at tinyurl.com slash zl4ys. And thanks to podcast listener Ron Harlev, he wrote in to tell me about services that take your long, unwieldy website address and spit back out a short, manageable one. One of those free services is tinyurl.com, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, which I use to shorten the address of the Thacker piece to tinyurl.com slash zl4ys. Another service that shortens website addresses is shrinkster.com, and both are free. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. That's podcast at s-c-i-a-m.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Anything further, Father? Anything further, Father? That can't be right.